of people to interview, activities to observe, documents to review, and records to examine as a representation of the whole... If America is a business going through an audit, what would be the findings 400 years post those first slaves arriving in Jamestown? I wanted to call on Emmett, but he was not a member. Wanted to call Cynthia or Annie May, but they too were nowhere to be found. And neither was Trayvon or Little George or Bigger Mike. I wanted to check in with Sandra or Laquan or Philando, but they were all having an out-of-body experience at that time. This is my little review of, of the American Audit. First time I listened to it, I started to like take notes. Um, mm -hmm. because I, I knew I wanted to ask you if I could have you on the show at some point. Like I was like, I'm going to have to ask him. And then I stopped because I was like, <laughs> I'm literally writing down everything that Donnie is saying. <laughs> Civics, y'all. A political conversation for all of us. What I've been asking people to do is, especially if they have something that they want to promote, is to introduce themselves in their own in their own words. Like, what do you want people to know about yourself? I'm Donnie. I'm a proud native of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, even though I'm about to relocate to Hyattsville, Maryland. Um, I'm a poet. I'm a community advocate. I'm a, a content editor with the North Star Media Group. I am a Kennedy Center Fellow. I'm someone's husband. I have two cats. Uh, I believe in telling it how it is and telling it how it should be. Yeah, in your bio, I really love that you call yourself a teaching artist. Um, yeah. Yep. Like I think I think we need more discussion about that, about how artists, especially if they have the training that you have and the experience that you have can be like really impactful in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's been a lot of uh, emphasis on STEM over the last few years, but myself and a lot of my colleagues uh, and a lot of folks that kind of work in the realm of arts and ed education started pushing for STEAM, which is the inclusion of arts within that, you know, that, that, that category, that realm of STEM. But there's just a lot of development um, and cognitive capabilities that young people earn and, and receive from dealing with the arts. What do you remember about learning about government in school? Like I took a class called civics, but not everyone does. How old were you? Where did you learn it? What do you remember? Yeah, so I remember that I took a class called civics like you in 10th grade at Scotlandville Magna High. My teacher, her name was, I think, Miss Desiran, or something to that effect. And the class was actually civics and free enterprise. And so I think what I remember learning, I remember learning about the three branches of government. I remember learning, I think, more about free enterprise and just how capitalism and the free market work. Uh, but it's a blur. Like I'm 40 years old now. I took that class when I was 15. So there's a mm -hmm. lot of a lot of things that have kind of gone by. <laughs> so at that time, um, there was a gubernatorial race in Louisiana between 
Cleo Fields and Michael Foster. And Cleo Fields was a relatively young black uh, candidate for governor, and Michael Foster was a middle-aged uh, white male. And I just kind of, I really remember the historical aspect of Cleo Fields being in that race um, against Michael Foster. This was 1995, something like that, 94, 95. And so, you know, um, Louisiana still has miles and miles to go just in like by way of progressive politics and by way of just progressive race relation, race relations. So you're talking about 25 years ago when a young black man, what I was experiencing in that time, myself, my classmates, and even our teacher was like there was an underlying conversation around not just the politics that they were running in with regards to running for governor, but the politics of race relations in the state of Louisiana. And so like Cleo Fields, you know, had an overwhelming amount of black support. But I think that as we were beginning to learn about things like uh, the electorate and, you know, population density and, you know, where things were, we were also learning that just because Cleo Fields may have been popular in New Orleans or popular in Baton Rouge or popular in, you know, cities and towns with, that were densely populated with black citizens, like Louisiana was a much, much larger state that consisted of many pockets of folks that were not, absolutely not going to vote for a young black man to run the state. So it was kind of like a, a duality of lesson that we were learning in real time. It was like some real time civic stuff in addition to like the textbook stuff that we were learning. I, you know, I looked it up because um, that's, uh, I looked it up and it is, you remember correctly, 1995 and there's a map of Louisiana and um, there's like pink and red for like Foster, like where the parish went for. And then yeah. like um, light blue and dark blue for fields. And it's like mm -hmm. all pink and red, except for like, <laughs> like New Orleans, like a couple like Orleans parish, like, and then like one, I don't even know what parish that is. Like one little sliver of a parish at the top right of Louisiana. That is an interesting memory though, that you had, that you had that sort of, I, I like how you put that real time civics lesson. You weren't old enough to vote in that cause you were like 15, right? During that. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yep. What do you remember about the first time you voted? That was the year that um, Al Gore was running against George W. Bush for mm -hmm. the presidency. And, you know, at the time, uh, I grew up in the same way that a lot of black kids grow up with the mindset that you vote for the Democratic candidate. Um you know, we thought that Bill Clinton was cool at the time and Al Gore had been his VP. So we're like, all right, well, Al must be cool. Um, we also we also knew that George W. Bush was the son of George H. W. Bush. And we knew that it was a big deal when Bill Clinton replaced George H. W. Bush. And so naturally, if Al Gore was Bill Clinton's people, then we needed to roll with Al Gore. Um, but really just this just this idea of the Democratic Party being 
um, the party that was supposedly uh, in our best interest. And so I remember, you know, casting my vote for Al Gore in 2000 and the huge uh, debacle that came from that and how there was like, mm-hmm. you know, multiple days and, and weeks of that vote being contested. And then ultimately George, you know, W. Bush was named uh, the president. And so uh, I, I want to say that there, my, my, my belief in the electorate system was a little skewed because very similar to 2016, it was hinted that, well, I don't remember, maybe not hinted, maybe it was an, an, an actual thing or close to an actual thing that Al Gore had the popular vote in comparison to George W. Bush, but George W. Bush, you know, was able to finesse the electoral, the uh, electoral college and mm-hmm. the state of Florida was basically the, the the controversial kind of tipping point in that election. And that's what took a long time for it to decide. There was like there were questions about the voting in Florida and, you know, just how everything played out. You know, I'm going to vote because this is my civic duty. I'm going to vote because of course the narrative with a lot of black Americans is that your ancestors died you know, for you to vote, which is actually like a, a, a false uh, narrative. Um, black people did not die for folks for the right to vote. Black people died while attempting to attain the right to vote. There's a very specific nuance in even that phrasing of black people died to vote. Like that's not 100% accurate. How would you talk to somebody when, when you know, who's just, who feels disenfranchised and is potentially disenfranchised by our, our system? So, like, what would you say, I mean, especially as an educator, like, how it's hard to, to argue against that? Yeah. I mean, I would say to plan to participate and vote your instincts and, and vote in a manner in which you feel comfortable with. In 2016, I voted for Jill Stein because I was not interested in voting for Hillary Clinton and I for damn sure was not interested in voting for Donald Trump. And the reason why I voted for Jill Stein was not really based on the probability of her winning. The reason I voted for Jill Stein was because I learned that if a a party like her party, the Green Party, was able to get 5% of the vote, that that would advance their agenda going into future elections and just give them more like, you know, airtime and, you know, you know, put them in a position where they could be on a debate stage and stuff like that. So for me, that was me voting in the interest of the future. It didn't turn out that way. Uh, The third party option has been suppressed even more now than it was in 2016. Like in 2016, you knew that uh, Jill Stein and uh, the other guy, the Johnson guy with the Libertarian camp, uh, Party, you knew they existed. You know, to be to be very transparent with you, Emily, I am team break the binary. Like, I'm really about this idea of us being able to look beyond the binary of Democratic and Republican options. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, even if you are a registered voter in a particular way, Democrat voter, Republican voter, 
you still, for the most part, pendulum back and forth in eight-year increments. If we look at maybe, what, the last 22 years of presidential elections, well, going back the last 24 years. So you had Bill Clinton. He did eight. You had George Bush, George W. Bush. He did eight. You have Barack Obama. He did eight. But what that tells us, or what that tells me at the very least, is that even people who are staunch Democratic voters or staunch Republican voters often just kind of pendulum back and forth in eight-year increments because maybe, you know, the person who they voted for did not do everything that they wanted to happen within that time. So they're like, well, you know, the, the country just kind of sways. For me, that is a very limiting um it's just kind of a limiting platform. Uh, you know, I've that, never. I, I oh, I was just gonna say that that's such a poetic way of. I've never thought about the the two party system, and and and. Civic Shaw is very pro ranked choice voting um, for the most part, which is one reason why I was hoping that Jadi, one of the co-hosts, could join us, is because he's he loves to talk about ranked choice ranked choice voting, and and we will definitely have to talk about that on the show. But yeah. I've never heard, I've never, there was such a vivid image and it's so, such a great apt image that you did of like essentially like a pendulum swinging from one extreme to the other. And I had never heard it put that way before. When you are bound to the binary, what you have is an option of two septuagenarian white males, one of which um, is probably experiencing a great deal of cognitive decline has his own, you know, political Two baggage. Two of which, really. Two of All which, right, right? And the <laughs> other is just a goddamn monster. <laughs> so, like, yeah. you know, where do you go? Where, what, you know, but but you are positioned to say, I got to choose one of these people. I think that when you talk about things like ranked choice voting, uh, that will, you know, be a, a, a game changer. Democratic governors of cities, Democratic mayors, excuse me, of cities and Democratic governors of states that have been as equally um, regressive as it pertains to stuff like police brutality as their Republican counterparts. So there's damn near like not much difference. John Bell Edwards was the first and to my knowledge still only governor in the state to sign a Blue Lives Matter bill into action. Hmm. Yuck. Yeah. Like that's a part of his legacy. Yeah. You know what I mean? That was signed in 2016 prior to the Alton Sterling shooting. Right. Ugh. So that that was already in place. Um, And so, you know, but at the same time, um, John Bell Edwards has been uh, he's been very vocal about you know, wanting to preserve HBCUs and wanting to invest in uh, minority businesses and things of that nature or whatever. But on the other hand, he's like, all right, here's a bill that will kind of allow you all to operate with impunity. Whatever it is, what it is. So he's got a mixed record, basically. <laughs> yeah, he does. Now... One can yeah. still argue that's better than uh, a record that Eddie Responi might have that would just be completely in one direction. 
yeah. Well, it's like the it's like the vote for the crook. Remember that slogan, "Vote for the crook." It's yeah. important. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. vote for the 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 Dixie crowd. It's important. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm just curious. I I don't really have an agenda with this question, but I'm just curious. Like you said, um, you you weren't gonna you know you weren't gonna vote for Hillary, and you definitely weren't gonna vote for Trump. Um, but but what were your reasons for not wanting to vote for Hillary? At that point. I was I had just kind of started to check out of the idea of binary politics. And, you know, for me, Hillary Clinton was the embodiment of the establishment. Uh, you know, Donald Trump was just an idiot, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and was rogue and a bull. But Hillary Clinton kind of embodied something to where I feel that if she would have been elected, I definitely think that she would have handled things far better than Donald Trump. I mean, hell, I think that one of my cats would have handled things better than Donald Trump. So that's like, that's an extremely low bar to clear, right? What I will say, yeah, I'm just saying, what I will say, I think what, what, what the Trump era has done, which may not have done the same thing with respect to Hillary Clinton, is that the Trump era really ignited a degree of resistance um, amongst mm-hmm. like marginalized people to say, look, I'm not going to allow this power structure, this power dynamic to just bulldoze over me and my, and my humanity. Like a lot of things slide by the wayside when a democratic leader is running a country or running a, running a state. I do have concerns about Joe Biden being elected and people being lulled kind of back into a somber because like, well, we got the monster out the house. But Mm -hmm. for me, um, it always comes back, though. Like when you think you killed the monster, it always comes back. You got to make sure you kill the monster. Well, yeah, because the thing is, like the monster is not reflective of any one individual uh, politician or, or president. The monster mm-hmm. is reflective of the system itself. Who the president is has minimal bearing on our everyday life. The bearings on our everyday life come from our municipal government. It comes from our mayors. It comes from our, our, um, our, our district attorneys. It comes from our metro council. It comes from our governors, it comes from our state legislators. Like these are the people that determine your quality of life on a daily basis. You know, actually, that's why I'm doing this podcast. That's why um, where the inspiration for this podcast came from. Because I was like, you know what? I really hope that Biden wins, even though he's not my favorite candidate. Just because we got to yeah. get the monster out of the house, or at least the current embodiment of the monster out of the house. Um, right. But. And we, and, and, you know, people's lives are on the line in the, in the short term. So that, that's got to happen. Yeah. But I was yeah. also afraid of exactly what you're talking about because I know in my personal experience, like I was concerned, like I was afraid for my friends that are of color or otherwise marginalized, including myself as a woman. Like I was afraid on a day to day level, but I didn't necessarily connect sort of my concern and my fear for, for people I care about to like how to participate in, in, in dismantling that. I mean, I voted, but I wasn't necessarily the most educated, um, empowered voter that I could have been in every election, you know, in every, in every race. I 
I don't ever want to let myself go back to sleep. And that's exactly how, I, when you said slumber, you know, cause that's exactly what it was kind of like, like just kind of like this, this, you know, um, sleepwalking through life, you know, because you're hustling so hard, you're struggling so hard to make a living and you're so busy. You don't have the time to do all the reading and the vetting that is kind of required of you as a citizen. And that's part of the agenda, I think, is to keep us struggling so hard to just live that we don't even have the free space in our brains and the free time to be participatory citizens. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have to we have to be honest about at the at the at the foundation and at the core and the construct of what this government was initially shaped to be. It was initially shaped to be of service to landowners and specifically to folks who identify as white and male. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the first woman to lie in state. The first. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Oh my God. Wow. I had not realized that I'd never thought of that. There's this, there's often a myth of progress that we tell ourselves as constantly at play. That's not always necessarily the case. Um, we progress a lot technologically. We advance a lot with regards to science. We don't always progress a lot in our humanity, in our personhood, and how we, you know, in, in, in issues of like equality. <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg, first woman to lie in state. 37 other people lie in state, all men. The core of American free enterprise was based around the enslavement of my ancestors. And so you don't get America as it is without slave labor. Um, and, you know, slavery was just a huge, like slavery was the, was the number one um, financial driver for the foundation of this country. So for me, what better metaphor than an audit? Tell me about the American audit and, and please, when you tell us about the project, tell me where the idea came from. Like, like I'm, you know, how did you narrow down everything that's happening in the world to get this idea? <laughs> the American audit, the description of it is a multimedia spoken word uh, performance and project that deals with um, the extended metaphor of America as a business being audited by Black Americans 400 years since the first uh, noted or established arrival of slaves to Jamestown, Virginia. Um, the concept for me um, kind of came from, I knew that I wanted to do something that that dealt with that 400 year marker of, uh, of, of the slaves arriving uh, on the colony of Jamestown, Virginia. The audit conclusion is the outcome of an audit provided by the audit team after consideration of the audit objectives and all audit findings. America, the blood on your boardroom walls is telling. Your contaminated water cooler is telling. The bomb blasted bones in the parking lot are telling. Your slur spewing receptionist is telling. Your trigger happy security guards are telling. Your dilapidated billboard is telling. 
The moral authority you were once successfully selling is telling you a manipulative marketing pitch is telling. Everyone is owning up to this business being a ruse, a hoax on our humanity. Your executives are eating themselves. There are no more trustees. Your stock is spiraling and your loan is like Sager was the was the number one um financial driver for the foundation of this country. Mm-hmm. So for me, what better metaphor than an audit? So the idea was if America is a business going through an audit, what would be the findings four hundred years post those first slaves arriving in Jamestown? Selection of people to interview activities to observe, documents to review, and records to examine as a representation of the whole management system. I wanted to call on Emmett, but he was not available. Wanted to call Cynthia or Annie Mae, but they too were nowhere to be found. And neither was Trayvon or Little George or Bigger Mike. I wanted to check in with Sandra or Laquan or Philando, but they were all having an out-of-body experience at that time. And Medgar didn't return any of my emails and Fred didn't text back. The Tulsa folks could not make it to my rally, neither could any neighbors from Rosewood. I wanted to ask unjust victims of 13th Amendment approved convictions if they could speak to me about due process, but they were too busy reenacting slave labor. And so what I did, I looked up different terms related to audits. And then from there, I um I would define the term and then I was, would respond to the definition with verse. But I knew that if it was going to be multimedia, it needed to be more than just me performing uh, poetry. The audit scope is the extent and boundaries of an audit. It generally includes the physical locations, organizational units, products, projects, or processes, and time period. So I reached out to a variety of educators and uh, cultural experts to sit down and have interviews with. The other component of it was uh, a photography component. And so my wife, who is a photographer, she and I were capturing images throughout uh, 2019 in different places. Um, some of the best stuff we got, we went to D.C. to the, um, the National Heritage Museum on African American Culture. Mississippi be like, Alabama be like, Georgia be like, South Carolina be like, North Carolina be like, Virginia be like, Louisiana be like, Kentucky be like, Missouri be like, Florida be like, Arkansas be like, Maryland be like, trauma destinations. Be like, crack that whip for cotton, crack that whip for tobacco, crack that whip for sugar cane, for can't see out my disfigured eye, for bones too old to work like they did when I was a child, you got at a discount. What I wanted was for the photography to be in the background while I was performing the work and then for the interviews to kind of serve as segues between sections of the piece. I just so happened to get lucky enough 
to debut the American art three weeks before the world shut down. Mm. So February 28th was the date the American audit happened at the um, Manship Theater. I'll never forget it. Like we uh, we packed the house. It was uh, it was like the the stellar moment of my performance career, like ever. I would love to see it live too. Like it sounds like you had a really good audience. Like they were really responsive. No, it was a it was a magical evening. Well, and I love the interviews. Like, um, I guess it's the maybe the teacher in you um, seeking out all of these amazing professors. Like the, I was rewatching it before we got on the mm-hmm. on this call together, and so the video is paused on Dr. Thomas Durant um, yeah. right as he comes into it. Yeah, he was. That was so. I cry. I do a lot of crowdsourcing, so I crowdsourced. For, and I, I just asked my, my Facebook uh, friends, like, who are some professors and historians and cultural experts I should talk to? And so, so much of what the American audit process, particularly around the interview stuff was, that was just me having the luxury of being able to engage in really, really rich conversations with very smart people that just had, like, well like a wealth of historical depth and knowledge. Uh, well, what do you like what do you see the future of this project as is is there you know it's on YouTube, it's available for people. Is it something is like the project done for you and you're ready to move on to a new project or is there like a future life for this project? Wow, um that's a question I've kind of wrestled with for months now. So I began building a curriculum for the American Audit uh a few months ago. And then I got this full-time job with the North Star, which has basically been occupying my life. I do not believe that the American audit is done with regards to like where I can take it and what can be done with it. Um, I told myself that the writing was finished, and I think that I'm still fine with that. But with regards to like some of the images and maybe even the interviews, I think that I could stretch that out. Because, you know, the American audit, mind you, was written and performed before we knew Breonna Taylor, before we knew George Floyd, before we knew Ahmaud Arbery, before we knew Rashard Brooks, before we knew any of these names that we've come to learn this year. Right. And so when you talk about a George Floyd and a Breonna Taylor, just kind of using, contextualizing, using the two of them, you talk about the type of assassination, lynching, slaughter that seems like something out of the early 1900s that happened this year. And so, so much of the American audit is a reckoning and it's a calling out of America's systems of American norms of American American treatment toward black people. Like there there's definitely opportunity for me to kind of go back and revisit with some of the, the imagery and some of the interviews and just kind of talk to, you know, talk to folks about the history we're living in now. Because I think that the difference between now and before at the point American audit was completed, 
Like there was a lot of history that led up to it, but we have been living in the last six months in a very specific history. Like the time that we're in right now, historians and scholars will talk about 50 years from now and it'll be like, God damn. So did you hear the story about 2020? When all of these things happened at one time? You know what I mean? And so with that, with that, you know, it, it is kind of worth kind of going back and revisiting and adding a few things that aren't there currently. There's a saying in activist circles that goes, the system is not broken. It's working as it's intended. So, you know, um, my agenda is based around equality and equity and liberation. And until <laughs> those things are until where we what we currently experience is disrupted and totally like taken apart and rebuilt, then that's just gonna you know, it's just gonna remain my agenda. <laughs> I, and I know that we have to wrap up, but I will say this. The system of American slavery was a replica for so many other systems. So whether you're talking about the entertainment industry, the music industry, whether you're talking about professional sports, like there are a lot of there are a lot of systems that borrowed their kind of methodology from American slavery. They may not yeah, say that that may not be a direct admission, but mm -hmm. you know, like the the proof is kind of in the pudding. Well, it's interesting because we've been talking a lot about. I mean, recently in recent years, there's been a lot of conversation about how the prison system has so closely mirrored, oh, yeah. you know, the, the system of slavery. But it's only like very very recently that we started talking about how professional sports and the arts and you know, other things that we wouldn't, you know, like that aren't punitive that are <laughs> what we would think of as yeah. generative, um, also have borrowed from, from that system. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the NFL, there are no black owners, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's wild. It's layers. It's layers. That's a good note to end on. <laughs> thanks for, thanks for coming and, and talking with me. Oh, thank you. <laughs>